All right, so today we wrap up our hijack series, and and our, our topic for today is, I think, the most common way that the culture has hijacked and and tried to started to influence the church. Am I on? Yeah, I am. Cool. Um, and uh, now I don't have to repeat myself. And uh, I, I think what happens is is consumerism will creep in. The problem with consumerism is that we are able to judge how good or bad we are because we can look at the world around us and we can start to see, oh, you know what? We're not nearly as bad as those people. Like, those people are selfish. Those people demand to have it their way. We aren't that selfish, right? And so we're going to let them go ahead and, and feel bad about themselves and we'll feel pretty good about ourselves. And so we start to operate on this Um, comparison kind of basis. But here is the issue that I want us all to understand as we come together to worship today, and it's simply this. We are all selfish. Selfish is part of our human nature. Um, Consumerism, as, as as a problem, has its root in the garden just like all of these worldview issues that we have. Remember, we said worldview is simply the way that we see the world around us. They're the lenses that we, that we use when we view the world. And so there's a biblical worldview, and so when we look at things in the world, we're using God's word as our way to understand it. That's appropriate. But what happens is the culture gives us all of these other worldviews, and we have them as a lens when we start to see the world around us. And in the church, we start to take a biblical worldview— And we start to mix it with these other cultural worldviews. And we come up with something that's confused and it's off. And it's not quite what it was supposed to be. And consumerism just simply is this, that I matter. I matter more than anything else. Let's go, yep. It's a new clicker even. And it worked perfectly the other day. And it's on. Ryan, go for it. There he goes. Consumerism simply is this. As it hijacks biblical worldview in the church, it's this. It's the idea that God has ordained that the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about ourselves. So we desire to be supremely happy in this life. That's what we want. And here's the thing. Because I just talked about it as a bad thing, you're going to say, Matt, we know that's wrong. But if I were to start another another way, another time, and I were to say to you, hey, by the way, church, God wants you to be supremely happy. God wants you to have what you want. God wants you to feel good about yourself. You would say, yeah, preach. I mean, that's probably, I would get more amens for that than other things that I say. You'd be like, yes, God wants me to be happy. Absolutely, that's what he wants. Listen, people fill stadiums with that message. People fill stadiums with that message. They get on TV with that message. People send them money. People build whole ministries around this message that, you know what, the central goal of your life is to be happy. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be supremely happy. And so that's your goal. The problem is that that's a worldview that's not found in Scripture. A biblical worldview says this. God has ordained that the central goal of your life is to be transformed in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's a biblical worldview. And can I tell you that being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ 
will not always make you happy. It will not always be a pleasurable experience. It can be brutal. Because to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ means that I have to go through this daily exercise that the Bible talks about as dying to myself. Why do I have to die to myself? Because I'm broken. Remember we said it goes, find its, it, its roots back in the garden. When Eve and Adam sin and sin enters the world, it breaks everything, including everybody that comes next. I, you, all of us, this is not a popular message, but listen to me, all of us, we are fundamentally flawed. That means we are not right. No matter how good we are, we are all wrong. I might be less wrong than you. I mean, there's a good chance. I mean, I'm pretty good. It's not true. It's not true. I made that up. See, look, I'm even lying to you from the stage. Fundamental flaw. The problem is we're all broken. Right? And so we have to go through this process of dying to ourselves every day to be more and more like Jesus. And that hurts and it sucks and it stinks and it doesn't feel good and it's not what I want. And so my ultimate goal can't be to live my best life now or to be happy above all things right now. In fact, we would say this way, that, that God is not interested in you living your best life now. God is interested in you living your best life in eternity. This isn't it. It was never supposed to be this. In fact, so I, I've been going to celebrate recovery this, this year. Um, and, and I love going to celebrate recovery. Celebrate recovery is awesome. And uh, some of you might know what I'm talking about, but I can't say that because I, it's not my job. It's, yeah, it's confidential. But if you've been, you know what I'm talking about. It's awesome. Right? And one of the things that we always do at Celebrate Recovery after large group time is we say the serenity prayer. And the serenity prayer is long. The one that my grandpa had on his fridge in the magnet was short. It was just the first part of it. But the serenity prayer just goes on and on and on. And, and it's really good. Um, and, and someday I'll memorize it. But it hasn't happened yet. But I do know there's this part at the end, right? There's this part at the end that says, you know what, that our job, you know, we're asking God, we're praying, God, God, that we want to pursue you so that, and I love the way it says this because it challenges this consumeristic worldview that creeps into the church. Here's what it says. It says, we want to pursue you. Why? So that we can be, get this, reasonably happy in this life. Reasonably happy in this life. And supremely happy in the next. Some of us have let consumeristic worldview hijack what we think this life is about. Because if you thought this life was about your own happiness, then you have missed the target. Because God has never said, I want you to be happy in this life above all else. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. But your happiness has never been his goal for you. Your transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ is his goal for you. His transformation means that you have to put to death to yourself every day things that will creep up because we're selfish and broken. Every day we have to put down lust. Every day. Every day we have to put down pride. Every day. Every day we have to put down desire that's not right. 
Every day we have to put down lack of forgiveness. Every day we have to put down everything that goes contrary to the God of the universe. Why? Because his goal for us is not for our supreme happiness, for our absolute enjoyment of this life. His goal for us is the transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so this is what we need to understand. And I'll tell you this, it's not new. It's not new. People have been struggling with this from the beginning. Since the garden, people have been struggling with this. And God has always had to remind people, look, this life is not about your happiness. God says, in fact, this life is about me. God says, I am above everything, and and your happiness is not the most important thing. I am the most important thing. And we're going to read that. We're just going to read 10 quick verses in the book of Haggai. Raise your hand if you knew that was a book in the Bible. Awesome. Right? So here's what you do. You go to Matthew starts the New Testament, and you just go back two books, right? You go to Matthew, and then three? Zechariah and Malachi. Yeah, you go back three books. Man, see, look, you go back to Matthew, and then you go past Malachi, Zechariah, and then you get to Haggai. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going to start. On August 29th of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Yes, that's how you say those names. Prove me wrong. <laughs> Prove me wrong. You can't, right? So that's it. So this is what the Lord—no, keep go back, go back. There you go. This is what the Lord says, right? Um, on August 29th of the second year of King Darius, why that matters is we can know when this happened. Right? So King Darius is the same king, if you know your Old Testament at all, um, you'll know the story of when Daniel gets stuck in the lion's den. Right? King Darius is king during that time. So this is the same time as Daniel is happening, at the end of Daniel's life, uh, where the wise men trick King Darius into causing Daniel to be thrown in the lion's den. Uh, it's a real thing. It really happened. Uh, you can read about it in Daniel 6. Uh, but this is what happens. Okay, and, and where was I? Now I'm stuck with the lion's den. Anybody watch VeggieTales? I'm picturing Larry the Cucumber hopping out of the lion's den, yelling to the lions, thanks for the pizza. It's not even a thing. It's not even a real thing. Anyway, this all ha- You guys wonder what happens in here, don't you? I'm going to promise you it's not pretty. Because now the song is happening. Anyway, this happens during the time of King Darius. You know, what happens is there was a moment where all of, uh, of Judah, God's chosen nation, were sent into exile. Right? They were sent into exile because it was God's discipline. Because they had failed to follow God's laws and commands. And God said, if you do what I tell you, I will bless you. If you don't, then punishment is coming. And they didn't respond. They didn't respond. They were warned. They were warned. They were warned. They didn't respond. So God finally sent discipline. And the discipline was, I am sending you into exile. The nation of Babylon will come against you, will conquer you, destroys the city of Jerusalem, homes, buildings, the temple of God destroyed, raised to the ground, takes the people into exile. And God says, you will live in exile for 70 years as punishment. And at the end of 70 years, he sends them back. He issues, King Cyrus at the time, he he has issued a decree that says that that everybody that was one of the refugees from, from Israel could now go back. And so they return. And they get back to Jerusalem. And the problem is this. 
it's been completely destroyed. And they have work to do now because it is completely devastated. So they're coming home, but not to the city they left. It has to be rebuilt. And so um, as they've been rebuilding it for a couple of years, God gives this message to the people, to the leaders. Uh, Zerubbabel is the governor. He is in charge. They don't have a king anymore because they're still under control of the Medes and Persians at this point, but they're sent back. So he's the governor of the area, and Jeshua is the high priest. And so God gives a message to Haggai for the governor of Judah and the high priest at the time. And here's what the message is. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's not a statement, that's an indictment. The message isn't, hey, I'm just going to tell you something you guys already know. At this point, what he's doing is saying, hey, you weird people, you know that this is my land. You know that you are God's chosen people. You know that you were sent into exile for disobeying the God of the universe. And you know that I chose to send you back out of my goodness. You know all of this. You know that you as a nation claim that there's only one true God and he's the God of our land. Yet, you keep saying the time hasn't come for us to rebuild the house of the Lord. The temple lies in ruins and you're doing nothing about it. Right? Like, you haven't got a message from God that you should clean up your act and fix my temple. Keeps going. But this is what the Lord sent the message. Uh, then this is the, uh, the, 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 then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Man, why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? Right? Like, like if I could put my own spin on this translation, it would be like, you morons. What is wrong with you? What do you think you're doing? How dare you? How dare you sit there and say, oh, we haven't had a sign from God yet. It's not time to rebuild the temple. It's not time to rebuild God's house. He hasn't shown us very clearly. He hasn't boomed a loud voice from heaven that says, now is the time to rebuild my temple. So we say, oh, it's not time yet. God hasn't given us a clear sign. At the same time, you're building luxurious houses for yourself. Not just structures to live in. Not just places to get out of the weather but you are building luxurious houses for yourself while my temple lies in ruins and people mock me because of it. Oh, Israel, God's chosen people. He doesn't even have a temple. He says enough is enough. And, but you know what? As a pastor, I hear this kind of thing all the time. Not about God's temple. But I hear this kind of thing all the time where people will, trying to sound super spiritual, be like, oh, well, you know what? We just haven't heard from God that it's time yet. We're waiting for a sign from God. And God's like, seriously? Just do what's right. You don't need a sign to do what's right. But, but people tell me this kind of thing all the time. Like, I'd love to start reading my Bible every day, Matt. I'd love to start giving regularly. I'd love to be in prayer. I'd love to have regular church attendance. I want to do all of this stuff, Matt, but you know what? God doesn't want begrudging gifts. God doesn't want me to give. He wants a cheerful heart. He doesn't want a begrudging gift, so I'm not going to give until he challenges me in my heart to give, 
until he gives me a sign that it's time. I'm not going to read my Bible every day because that's just going through the motions. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't just want to go through the motions. So I'm not going to read my Bible at all until God prompts me and gives me a desire to read my Bible. Right? Like, like, I know that we're not supposed to live together before marriage, and I know we're not supposed to have sex before marriage, but I don't want to rush into anything, and I'm not sure they're the right person, and so, so I'm not going to get married until God gives me a sign. I'm just going to keep doing this. Right? But I'm waiting. It sounds super spiritual. Like, I'm waiting for God to give me a sign. You know? Like, like somehow we get a pass because we're saying, oh, well, we'll do it if God tells us to do it. Well, you know what? God has clearly told us what's right. We know what's right. And we know what's wrong. And we don't need to wait for a sign. And the people are the same way. They're like, well, we're waiting for God to give us a sign to rebuild his temple. In the meantime, we'll just go ahead and keep building our luxurious homes. But God knows the truth. God knows the truth. God knows that the reason that we're doing this instead of this is because this is good for me. And I don't think that is. Because I'm making this about me. And this doesn't really help me. But God says, I'm not buying it. And he keeps going. This is where it gets a little hard for us to swallow. This is the part we hate. But it's what it says in the Bible. I can't make it not say it. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Now get this. Oh man, get this. You've planted much, but you harvest little. You eat but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you're putting them in pockets filled with holes. So the God of the universe is saying, like, have you ever wondered why it's not going well for you? Have you ever wondered why it's not going well for you? I, I, I can picture God going, like, well, you know what? Every time when they plant and they harvest and they're like, huh, we thought we'd have more. I can picture God saying, yeah, you did. Right? Every time they eat, but they don't have enough to be satisfied, even though they should have enough to be satisfied. God's saying, see? Like, of course. Every time they drink, but they're still thirsty, or they put on clothes, but they're still cold, or they get their paycheck and they get their funds and they put them in their pocket and it's like they disappear. And God's like, hello. I mean, here's the implication. God is doing this to them. I know we hate to think of it that way. But God is doing this to them. He is being very clear here. In fact, go on to the next one. He says, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. Now, go into the hills. Bring down the timber. Rebuild my house. How about you put me first? Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Like, you can't figure out why it doesn't make sense. He says, I know why it doesn't make sense. I know why it's not working. Because you keep elevating yourself above me, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I know this is weird. I know it's weird for us to talk about this, right? Because we don't always talk about God's discipline in this way. So I want to be really clear with you, and it's not going to make you happy. There are times... When God will bring hardship into your life because of your wanton disobedience. There are moments where God will allow things to happen in your life 
because you have been willfully disobedient. He's not mad at you. He's not punishing you. But he is disciplining you. And he is trying to correct you. And that's just the way it is. I know we wish that it didn't say that. We wish that it wasn't there. But again, I can't make the holy word of God say something different. This is what it says. Right? There are times in your life when you're being willfully disobedient to God. There are times that hardship will happen to you at a weirdly increased clip. You'll start to wonder, like, what in the world is going on? Now, I want to be careful because I don't want you to walk away thinking. We have to tread really carefully here because I don't want you to think every time something bad happens that God is disciplining you. We live in a broken world, and sometimes in a broken world, broken world things happen. Right? But sometimes God allows more of them to happen in an effort to train you up. Sometimes when I'm driving down the road and I drive over a screw and I get a flat tire, and that sucks because we were talking about this first service, because I have this now all-wheel drive car. Like, you know what they tell you when you go in to get a new tire in an all-wheel drive car? Well, you can't have just one tire. You've got to buy four. I'm like, I just bought these tires like six months ago. Like, I'm not sure I need to buy four. Well, it's the law. It's the rule. You gotta buy four. So I have to buy four new tires and then get my car aligned and get them balanced. And the next thing you know, I've spent $750 to buy four new tires because I drove over a stupid screw that somebody put in the street. Every time I drive over a screw that I put in the street, I'm not gonna stop and think, whoa, time out. Why is God mad at me? Like, how is God disciplining me? What did I do? That's, broken stuff happens in a broken world. But here's the deal. Sometimes... When we are willfully living disobedient, and here's the thing, you never have to guess and wonder if you're willfully living disobedient. You know. Israelites knew that they were living in luxurious houses while the temple of God was in ruins. They knew. When, you, when, when, you're, when you're living a disobedient life, willful disobedience, you know. You know it. Right? You know. Don't be surprised if the hand of discipline comes on you then. That's what happens to these people. That's what God says. And he's like, he's like you are, are letting my house lie in ruins. I am in dishonor and shame because of what you're allowing. You're building your own houses. You're making you important when I should be the primary importance. Fix it. Go up to the hills. Cut down the trees. Bring them down. Rebuild my house so that I can take pleasure in it and I can um, be honored. And I know it sounds weird. We're like, it's pretty selfish of God to act that way, right? It is ridiculous. I'm not going to do it. Okay, all right. We joked ahead of time. He's like, how long are you going to be able to wear that jacket if it gets really hot in there? And I'm like, I don't know, but when I take it off, I'll twirl it around and throw it to you. And it was weird, I know. Um, But that's okay. That's how we roll here at Blessed Hope Community Church. Anyway, let's get back on track. Come on, people. Um, so, so here's the thing, right? Like, as the creator of the universe, God is the only one that gets to do this. Like, if I stood up here and I said to you, hey, 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 I know how to make your life better. Make me the most important person in your life. Put me first in all things. If I elevated myself above you, that would be selfish, and it would be a problem. If I elevated my needs and my wants and my desires over my wife and my children, that would be selfish. It would be inappropriate. 
you would have right to question. But when God does it, he's not just some guy standing on a stage doing it. When God does it, he is the creator of everything. He has created and ordered all things. And therefore, he can tell you what to do, and he can tell you to honor him first, to put him first, and that that's right, because he is the creator of all things. And he knows something that's counterintuitive. He knows something that's weird. God knows that when you put him first, that that actually brings order to your life. Your life seems chaotic. God says, put me first. That brings order to your life. Your life seems, seems a mess. He says, put me first. That brings peace to your life. It brings rest and it brings joy and it will make you reasonably happy in this life to put me first and it will make you supremely happy in the next one. God gets to do this because he's God. Listen, you should listen to no man, no woman that tries to elevate themselves above you in this way. You would be right to question. You would be right to have pause. You would be right to reject that teaching. But this is God. He's not a man. He's not a woman. He is creator of all things. He is not a human being that's on our level. He is so far above us that he can say, you put me first, that is good for you. And he's not just talking, he's telling you the truth because he created and ordered it all. It's the only way it makes sense. It's the only way it makes sense. Oh man, we keep going. There's this last text here. This is where God says, one more time for the slow people. He's talking to me. He says, Matt Hans." You need me to remind you things multiple times before they make sense. So one more time for you, everybody else listen in. You hoped for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies. While all of you are busy building your own fine houses, right? My house lies in ruins. And it's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. So he says, one more time, just in case you haven't got it yet. You elevated yourself instead of me. And because of that, nothing is working the way that it's supposed to work for you. Because bringing a consumeristic me first, I want to be happy above all things worldview into this is counterproductive. A biblical worldview says we put God first And our chief goal in this life is to be transformed to be more like Jesus. And being transformed to be more like Jesus sometimes is painful. Sometimes it hurts. But it's just what it is. And so we see consumerism as a worldview is sinful. The idea that I just want to be happy above all else is sinful. Because what it does is it elevates me and my wants and my needs to king. To primary when I should always be secondary to God. And now I want to talk about how I see this creep into the church most often. And the way that we see this creep into the church most often is through this idea, this, this uh, consumeristic worldview as it hijacks the church, uh, we get this idea of cultural Christianity. Next one. Cultural Christianity is this worldview, it's this belief and, and, and I worry, I'm going to be, be as, as Pastor David would say, I will be blunt honest with you. Um, I worry that some of us might be caught in this snare. So I want you to dig in. I, I got about 10 minutes left, and I, I really want you to dig in here because, because 
we can't be wrong about this. This is the difference between eternity with our Savior and eternity in hell. This is the difference. This is the difference between evangelism that matters for people and a false faith that damns people. Listen, you've got to dig in here. Cultural Christianity is, is how um, consumeristic worldview starts to bleed its way into the church. And it is so easy in this culture. Cultural Christianity is this faith that believes in God and admires Jesus. That's it. They believe that God is real and it admires Jesus. We like his teachings. We like his moral philosophy. We like what he says about love. But we don't really think that he's needed except maybe to take the wheel when we have trouble. Like I live a life that that believes in God but completely ignores him. I think Jesus is great, but I don't really need him in my life until I've got a problem and then I cry out to him. And then he helps me with, and then I put him back in the box and I just keep going. You know what we do? We treat him like a genie. You remember Aladdin? You know, you remember, you remember Robin Williams is the genie in Aladdin? How many of you have gotten Disney Plus already? How many of you have watched Aladdin on Disney Plus? Not the movie, the cartoon. Good for you. How many of you have watched The Return of Jafar? Stop that. Stop that right now. Okay, but the genie, right, in Aladdin, the genie, right, he, what, what does he say? He's got this thing, phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. That's what we do to God. That's cultural Christianity in a nutshell. Phenomenal God of the universe in charge of all things. And we'll put him in a box and we'll leave him there until we need to bring him out. Right? And the problem is cultural Christianity looks a lot like regular Christianity. And so a lot of us are lying to ourselves about maybe us, certainly our friends, family, and coworkers. Right? Because cultural Christianity admires Jesus but, but doesn't think much of him unless we've got a problem. We love God's power, but we keep him in a box. Phenomenal cosmic power. Itty-bitty living space. See, cultural Christians want to keep God in schools. They want, you to, they, they want schools to be able to pray. They want to keep God in schools. Right? They get mad when people say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Right? They want to vote for and they want to evangelistically make sure you vote for traditional values. Right? On the surface, cultural Christians carry a lot of the same values as Christians. But it's not quite enough. And we're going to talk about why that is. So let's look. There's five things. There's five um, viewpoints uh, of cultural Christianity that I want us to really understand. Because on the surface, they sound okay. But together, they're fundamentally flawed and they teach a false gospel. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. On the surface, we'd say that's okay. But a God who exists and created and ordered the world and watches over human life. See, we love that, right? We would never argue that. Cultural Christians sound Christian because they're theists. They're not atheists. They are theists. They believe in a God. The problem is they assume their belief is good enough. They assume that just because they believe in God, that they're all set. Because a God creates and maintains and orders the world. And if they believe that, they say, look, I believe in that God, so I'm all good. 
I'm all set. Right? In fact, a cultural Christian might look at you if you're a sold-out Christian. A cultural Christian might look at you and tell you to knock it off. You're being weird. See, you know that you're striking people the wrong way when you are so on fire for the gospel that Christians are telling you to knock it off because you're driving people away. You're just a little bit more into it than we are. You're just taking it a little bit extreme. Now, we're just believing something different, okay? See, these guys, they believe that God's there. They believe he exists. They just don't know much more about him. Next one. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible. And they wouldn't add this, but I will. And coincidentally, most other religions will teach the same thing. So they say, you know what? God exists. He creates everything. We believe in God, and he wants us to be nice to each other. He wants us to live a good life. He wants us to treat people kindly, right? He wants us to be good and nice and fair. And so what we see is we see the church, we see the Christianity, we see the Bible, we see Jesus not as a way to die to ourselves and be born again in Christ, not as a way to be completely transformed, but as a good moral lesson, I hear this all the time from parents as they start coming back to church when they have kids. They've, they've gone away from the church. They have kids. They start coming back to the church. They ask them, how come you're coming back to the church? Because I want my kids to learn how to be good people. Well, that's all fine and good, but that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to die to yourself because you are not a good person. You are a broken person. You can't just make yourself a good person by learning some good moral values from the Bible. You have to die to yourself and be reborn as a Christian with the Holy Spirit of God. You are made new. That's how you're transformed, not just by learning how to be nice to each other. When I was an elementary school counselor, I taught character ed all the time. The goal of character ed, when I would go into classrooms and I would teach character education, the goal of character education was to teach you how to be a nice person. I promise you it wasn't the gospel. They wouldn't let that happen. But they let character ed happen all day, every day. You know, the problem with this, too, is then we base whether somebody is a good Christian. If we're cultural Christians, we base somebody's goodness on how moral they are. You know, the problem with morality apart from the gospel, it's a moving target. I know atheists who would sincerely believe and argue they are much more moral than I am. And they would say they're much more moral than I am because I'm exclusive and I make people feel bad with the gospel. And they include everybody. I know folks that are for abortion who would say they are much more moral than my anti-abortion worldview. I'd say, well, well, I think life should be protected. I think that's pretty moral. They would say, well, we think the highest level of morality is for people to have the, the, the freedom of choice for their own body. And so they would argue, and, and listen, I, you know, we can talk later, but, but they would argue, well, so this is more moral, right? And so the problem with morality is that when it's outside of the gospel, it is a moving target. We can't base on morality. We keep going cultural Christianity tenets, right? There is a God who orders everything and watches over life, and he wants people to be good, nice, and fair. The third one is this. The central goal, this is where consumerism creeps in, the central goal is for you to be happy and feel good about yourself. And so guess what? If the central goal is for you to feel happy and feel good about yourself, then guess what? 
anything that causes you to be happy, God must be okay with. This is the God that endorses cohabitation, living together before marriage. This is the God that says sex outside of marriage is okay as long as it makes you happy and makes you feel good. Right? This is the God that says no-fault divorce. That must not be a problem because you're unhappy and I want you to be happy. I swear to you, I, I say in this at first service, it's like before I became a pastor, I had no earthly idea how many people I would have to have a conversation with, like a legitimate, serious conversation as they were trying to explain to me why God wanted them to leave their spouse and go be with somebody else's spouse. Like that is a real conversation that I've had to have more than once. Right? Because if God is in charge of everything and he wants us to be good, nice, and kind to each other, and it's about me being happy and being fulfilled, and I think that woman would fulfill me, then God must want me to be with her. And so I I should be able to leave my wife and go be with her because that will make me happy and that's what I want. That's not Christian. But yet we have people that claim Christ that think this is the way to live. We keep going. There's two more. God doesn't need to be particularly involved in my life unless I need him to fix something. For years, I was guilty of this. I was guilty of all of these for years, but these last two really sting me. Like the idea that that I should be happy. So when Carrie and I wanted to have sex before we were married, guess what? We did because we liked it and it was fun and it made us happy. Even though people told us that doesn't honor God. We said, well, it honors our God because God wants us to be happy. And we lived together before we were married, right? And people said, you can't, no. We had a pastor that we love dearly say, I I will not marry you because you are living together and engaged in sex and you shouldn't be. And we said, well, we respect your opinion, but obviously it's wrong, mister who's been to seminary and has his master's of divinity and his doctor of ministry and all of this. You obviously misunderstand the Bible because our God in the Bible that we've really never read before wants us to be happy. That's ridiculous, right? But we called that God out every time there was a problem. Somebody got sick, grandpa was in the hospital, rubbed the lamp, God would come out, we'd pray for grandpa to be healed. Divine butler, cosmic therapist, something's not right, come fix it. Good, it's done, get back in your lamp. Right? This is what we did. And it's too much of the church. This is a lot of what the church does in this last one. Here's how it all fits together, and here's where it's tragic. Good people go to heaven when they die. Because we believe in God. And because we think we're good people. And we are. Listen, I'm looking at you. You're good people. I look in the mirror when I compare myself to everybody else, I'm a fairly good person. When I look into the Word of God, I am tragically dysfunctional. Right? But, But because we think we're good people, we believe that God's real, and we think that we're good people, we assume we're going to heaven. We don't really know what good is. If I ask these people, like, like, what does good mean? Ah, we're not sure. But when I sit down and meet with people at funeral gatherings to prepare for a funeral, They may not know what good is, but they know it's a standard that they can hit pretty easily. Right? This happens all the time. I'll sit down in my office or I'll go to the funeral home to meet with a family. And I always ask, I have to ask, right? Because I'm doing the funeral. I ask, so what was their life of faith like? What was their spiritual life like? You know, like, like, were they a Christian? 
You know what I always get? Like, I never get anybody that says, oh, no, man, they're in hell. Like, I mean, no joke. I'd say I've done countless funerals. I could count them. There's like 40 of them. In my five years as a pastor, I've done like 40-some funerals. I've never had a family say to me, oh, no. <laughs> no, no hope for that guy. You know what they always answer? Unless they can say, unless they can say, oh no, they were sold out for the gospel and I've had those meetings and they are awesome. I've done those funerals and as hard as they can be, they are truly times of celebration. But I've done enough funerals where I sit down with the family and I ask like, like, you know, tell me about their, their, their faith. Were they a Christian? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, they didn't read the Bible. They didn't go to church. They never talked about Jesus, right? They didn't believe in sin, but they were definitely a Christian. Like you have to, I, I'm slow sometimes. You have to explain to me. Oh, well, here's the thing. They believed in God and they lived a good life. So obviously they are going to heaven. And that is cultural Christianity at its finest. That is a hijacked worldview that messes with the church. It's not real. Because here's the thing, the Bible expressly contradicts it. They believed in God. Great, so do demons. James 2.19 says this. You say you have faith because you believe there's one God. Good for you, he says sarcastically. Not good for you like, yay you. Good for you sarcastically because even the demons believe that. And they tremble in terror. They believe in God. Great, so do demons. And they lived a good life. They were a good person. They did good things. And Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I don't treat the grace of God that meaningless. If keeping the law could make us right with God, or in this case, if being a good person could get you right with God, then there was really no need for Christ to die. Like this is hijacked worldview that jacks with the church. If you thought that because you believed in God and were a good person that you were all set, you are sadly mistaken. And if you thought that your parents, your kids, your grandparents, your neighbors, your coworkers, because they believe in God and because they were generally good people, that they were all set, listen, it's not true. And it's not me. That's the word of God that tells this to you. And it's hard and it hurts and it stings, but it's the reality. And, and David shared something at Celebrate Recovery that I thought was so critical for us to understand here. So I stole these next three slides from him, but uh, we go on. Like, belief is a conclusion that has been made, but it's not a choice that's been made. As we get to the end of this series about biblical worldview and the way it's getting hijacked from the culture, there's a difference between believing in God and choosing to surrender and say, here's my heart, Lord. Speak what's true. And then he gave these two um, ridiculous examples that I thought I would share with you. Look at that happy guy eating a tomato. That is what no one ever has looked like eating a tomato. You can believe that that salad and, and those vegetables are the right way um, to eat healthy. But just because you believe it doesn't mean you're going to eat that way. I believe that I need to eat vegetables and go for walks and do those things. But all I can do is look at that and think, I wonder where they went to lunch. And I would like to go there. It's time for us to choose. Uh, we'll ask the praise team to come up. We're going to get ready to close this out. And, and I just want to say this. There's, there's a text in Matthew 7. 
where, where God is talking, Jesus is talking about how this is going to go. And he says at the end times, there are going to be people that are um, condemned that are going to say to him, no, 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 wait, Lord. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do all this stuff in your name? Didn't we do all these things for you? And his response to them is going to be, depart from me. I never knew you. Like, all that stuff that you did, that was okay, but it wasn't for me, and it wasn't about Christianity. Depart from me. I don't know you. And I can think in our culture, I can think how that's going to play out. I can see a lot of us saying to him, but, but, but Jesus, didn't we argue that we should keep Christ in Christmas? Right? Didn't we vote for traditional family values? Didn't we, you know, want them to be able to pray in school? Didn't I have a Christian tattoo? Didn't I have a sign about how prayer changes things hanging up on the living room wall of my house? Didn't we say grace at dinner? And, and Jesus is going to be like, yeah, that's great. D- didn't we live a good life? He's going to say, man, depart from me. I don't know you. Because the key isn't knowing about God and living a good life. The key is knowing God and choosing to surrender to him. And so I'm going to pray for us. And if you've got questions about that, man, I I want you to ask them. Let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. This is too big of a deal. Father, God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for who you are. God, we pray that, that, that you will continue to make true our hearts that through the power of your spirit that you will show us what's right, that we won't have to guess. Father, I pray that for those of us that we're banking on a knowledge of you and just generally being good, I pray that we'll be broken to the point of complete surrender where we will know that the goal isn't to be good enough because we'll never be good enough, but that the goal is to completely die to ourselves and trust and follow you for salvation. I pray that we will not bank on cultural Christianity, but that we will that we will trust in the grace of Jesus Christ as we surrender and follow you completely. God, if there are people here that are struggling with that, I just pray that you'll draw them closer to yourself, that you'll speak truth to their hearts, and that they ultimately will surrender. Father, we love you and praise you. Amen.